This will be the, for now, the last sermon in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to read a text at the moment because we'll be at several, several different texts. So let me pray and then we'll get into God's word. Lord, we give you the glory and we pray now as we continue to worship you that you would, by the power of your spirit, use your word, which is alive and active, to convict us and to challenge us, to heal us, to cleanse us, to empower us. And may we truly be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word for your glory, Lord, that you might be exalted. We give thanks to you, Lord. Amen. Now what? We have finished the book of Genesis. 50 chapters. I'm not sure how long that took. How long was that? Three and a half years? Something like that? Was it four years? Three and a half years? It was a long time. 50 chapters. I have to be careful because in my mind and my heart, I can kind of look at it as a feather in my cap, as a trophy. I finished the book of Genesis. We've gone through Philippians, Joshua, Philemon, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, James. I think at Bible study we did several minor prophets, even Obadiah. First and second Thessalonians. We've done many books of the Bible. And I have to be careful because I can look at it as, okay, I want to conquer another book in the Bible. I want to be able to go through one more book. Why? Why? Why do I want to go through one more book? Why are, are you here? Why do you want to hear one more book? Why do we go through books of the Bible? Am I more excited about accomplishing something that could be seen as significant? Go into the book of Genesis. How many preachers have preached through the book of Genesis? I'm sure thousands and thousands, but has John MacArthur preached through the book of Genesis? Did John Piper preach through the book of Genesis? Did Charles Spurgeon preach through the book of Genesis? And so there can be almost, if I'm not careful, yes, I preached through the book, the whole 50 chapters. Who else has done that? But then in my mind, I stop and I pause, and I think the Lord is saying, not actually audibly in my head, but I'm thinking that the Lord could be thinking of me, so what? Now what? It's not about reading, it's not necessarily, or it doesn't stop with just reading the book of the Bible, or hearing all these sermons on the book of the Bible, and then period. It's done. The question is, what are we going to do with what we read? And I'm more accountable than you are, which is a little scary. Because after reading and studying the book of Genesis for so many years... 
has it and is it going to change my life to any significant degree? Or is it just, again, black marks on a white piece of paper? Has Genesis changed your life, gone and, and, and going through it in any degree, shape, or fashion? And I'm not saying that it has not. I, I pray and trust that it has some. But I want to be sure that we just don't move on to the book of Hebrews and then put that feather in our cap that we've gone through that book. But rather, I want us to stop and pause and consider the the question, have our souls been refreshed and revived by hearing the book of Genesis? Throughout the Old Testament, you'll hear in the Psalms and different places, Psalm 85, verse 6, Will you not revive us again, O Lord? Even Psalm 19 Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And that Hebrew word there is not the normal word for revive. It's, it's the Hebrew word shuv, which means repent. Have our souls been refreshed and renewed to the point of repentance by going through the book of Genesis? At times, maybe it's because we are reformed, we will pray for revival. Have you ever been to a revival meeting? Have you ever been to a revival meeting? Maybe you're not Southern Baptist. I was raised Southern Baptist, and we had revivals all the time. Now, the idea of revivals when I was growing up was not that the Spirit of God moved in a powerful way in a whole congregation and that there was repentance and it was a sovereign work of God. It wasn't that kind of revival. Rather, we would schedule the revival. We're going to have a revival meeting in two weeks. We come together, we get a good preacher, he'll preach, and we'll get really excited. Yay! There can be that kind of revival meeting. When I talk about revived, I think in Scripture the idea is that the Spirit of God does a deep work in the heart of the people. So they were broken and they're humble and there's repentance. And then out of that joy. But first, this deep work of God by which hearts are broken and even lives are changed and transformed. And then there's joy. And I think that that that's what God wants to see in our lives, having gone through the book of Genesis. Are we revived people? Excited, but excited to see our lives transformed by the truth that's found in the book of Genesis. So then, this morning, we're going to review, but not review the book of Genesis to gain information, but rather to gain transformation by God's grace. So we want to review Genesis for revival. We want to review Genesis not for educational purposes alone, but for transformational purposes. And I would be the first one to say that I need to be revived. I need to be refreshed. I need to be renewed. And God can do that by his spirit, through his word that we see here in Genesis. So I want this morning to give us four points 
of review for revival. Number one, the first point of review for revival. And again, the idea is that we don't want to just move on from the book of Genesis and then do another book in the Bible and then do another book in the Bible and do another book in the Bible. And we don't change our lives because the result of doing that could be that we get hard hearts. If we grow in our knowledge of the Bible, but our hearts are not softened and broken and lives are not transformed, then our hearts will get hard and we'll get arrogant. We want to be soft and pliable to God and to his word. To do that, let's prayerfully then consider review for revival. This first point of review is this. Your view of God should be even more awesome now. Having gone through the book of Genesis, your view of God should be more awesome now than it was before. Your view of God should be larger now than it was before. We went through the book of Genesis. Your view of God should be more biblical now than it was before. Your comprehension and commitment to the Lord should be deeper now than it was before. We should, in our own comprehension of how glorious God is and how gracious He is, we should have gone up at least a size. God should have in our minds and in our hearts. There is a creator of the universe, and that changes everything. And we see this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that a difficult verse to memorize? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think it would take maybe 10 seconds to memorize that. Everybody in this room from five years old and up, can memorize Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. (laughs) Right? It's foundational. And that's why often it's attacked so much, this whole first chapter. Genesis is about the creation of the whole universe, especially Genesis 1. But it's not about the creation of the Creator. Genesis 1 doesn't describe how the Creator was made, because the Creator has always existed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, by very definition of who He is, has always existed. He is the self-sufficient God. I am that I am means that. I have always been and I will always be the great I am. This is who Yahweh is. Looking at Genesis 1.1, it's God that created time, space, and matter. It's all right there in Genesis 1.1. God created the macroverse and the microverse. All that we see and all that we don't see, God created. The whole entire universe. That means that God has the right and the might. He has the power and he has all the authority. And that's all derived from Genesis 1.1. That means that you and I can't believe anything we want to. And we can't do anything we want to. There's only one person that has true 100% freedom 
to act according to their own desires and powers, and that's who? That's God. That's the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's in Genesis 1.1. So then, the best thing to do is that we align ourselves and our hopes and our dreams and our, our own ambitions, our own morality to God and what he has revealed in his scriptures. There was a post that was made by, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Dan Scavino, President Trump's media man. He does a lot of the uh, former tweets and troops for Trump. And so I don't know if he's quoting Trump or if he's quoting himself or somebody else, but he said this in a very positive light. Quote, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Then a lot of people, amen, amen, yes, 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 amen, amen. No, actually, that's not biblical. There's one way to believe. The Bible says believe, and not just in, in something, but believe in the God of the Bible. That's new ageism. Just believe in something. What does that mean? I believe a cow created the universe. I believe the moon's made out of cheese. I believe there are lizards in the center of the earth. Believe in something and then sacrifice everything for it? That's mumbo-jumbo. That's insane. That's wrong. Why, why would we believe that and why would people get excited about that? Now, I appreciate, I think, the sentimentality is, you know, I, I think the idea is you should have some values and be willing to live by them. I, I think to, to believe the best of that statement that I read, perhaps that's what they're trying to say, right? Have some, have some kind of core values and live by them. I, I think that's true. But when we read our Bible, we believe that there is an all-powerful God that is holy, gracious, compassionate, wrathful, and that he incarnated himself and that God the Son lived a 100% perfect life, died on the cross for all sinners that believe in him and trust him and rose again. We believe that way. We believe in Genesis 1-1. That is, again, we don't have a smorgasbord that we're allowed to pick from. The Bible says believe in a certain way. We follow the scriptures. For example, about God, what's the first thing that we believe about him according to the book of Genesis? Well, we believe he's the creator. He created all things. Everything in the universe got its being from God. It only exists because God spoke it into being. It was the word of God that created the whole universe. That's how powerful he is. He speaks and things happen. And in the future, he will speak and all things will unbeing. They will cease to be. They will be burned up and he'll create again. Not only is he the creator we can even see that he's the judge. Early on, Genesis 2, chapter 17, 
sorry, chapter 2, verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. He's the creator. And even early on in Genesis 2.17, basically he's saying there, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, that's going to bring death. But then we see that he's also the redeemer. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We'll talk more about this later, but this is the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is Genesis 3.15. It's ultimately pointing to the Redeemer. Of course, we see God is the Savior and also judge. And Genesis 6 through 9, it's about the great flood. And God provides the ark for Noah as he's judging the world. Creator, Redeemer, Savior, Deliverer. Even it talks about in Genesis 6, 5, God knows all things. He's omniscient. He knows the sinfulness of man. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor. It's the, it's the word really for grace. God had grace on, on Noah. God had favor on Noah. The book of Genesis unfolds God as being the creator, the redeemer, the savior. He's the judge. He sees all things. He's all powerful. He's sovereign. He, he's everywhere. The book of Genesis starts with magnificent doctrine about God. Genesis 12:1 Noah, I'm sorry, not Noah, Abraham was a heathen. Most likely he was involved in worshiping the moon. At least that culture worshiped the moon and they even sacrificed people to the moon god. Abraham was saved out of that type of culture. And Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country. And we've read and studied this whole scripture section on Abraham. It was not Abraham that initiated the relationship to God. It was God that initiated the relationship to Abraham. God is the initiator of grace. God does that. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then God had mercy and grace and love and made me alive in Christ. But even here in the Old Testament, God pursued and ran after Abraham, Abram, and had grace on him and initiated the relationship with Abraham. This is God in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. Verse 14, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is, the Lord is talking to Abraham and Sarah about her bearing a child. And in verse 13, the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? You know, she laughed. I think, well, she in her late 80s or 90s, I've forgotten, and she laughed. <laughs> you know, like that's impossible, Lord. Then he says in verse 14, is anything, do, is anything too difficult for the Lord? You will have a son, Sarah. And of course she did. Is anything too hard for God? Anything. There's not one thing in terms of power that's too, diffi- too difficult for God. Power itself comes from God. Ability comes from God. 
God is all-powerful. And there's, of course, so much more about God in the book of Genesis. We could look at Genesis chapter 49, and I won't spend a lot of time here because we, we just looked at this, but Genesis chapter 49, toward the end, verse 24, it talks about the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd. That's not David. This is Jacob, old Jacob that says that God is like a shepherd. He's like this rock that you can depend upon. Verse 24, chapter 49. And he is the Almighty, the El Shaddai, the God that is mighty to provide all our needs. This is how the book of Genesis talks about God. And then when the book of Genesis is about to close, it talks about his absolute gracious providence. As for you, you meant, uh, chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So all that to say that the book of Genesis, in one sense, is like a doctrine of God book. If you want to learn who God is, read the book of Genesis. It's not wrong to read Charnock or or Pink, or MacArthur, or Piper, or Spurgeon. But it was Spurgeon, I've forgotten the exact quote. Here it is. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible, is what C.H. Spurgeon said. (laughs) And he has some very good books and sermons that I love to read, but he himself said, yes, have and read many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in the book of Genesis for a while. So then you and I have to answer these questions. Has your reliance in God deepened and grown? Haven't gone through the book of Genesis. If not, why not? Is your understanding of God being all-powerful but near you and caring for you and his all-powerfulness, is that more clear to you than ever before, having gone through the book of Genesis and looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is your understanding of how patient and gracious God is, is that more clear to you after looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were they the most godly men that have ever existed? Hardly. Yet God made a covenant with them, so gracious and kind and patient with them. So I pray that my and your view, comprehension, and devotion to God would be, would be revived. That we would have truly a heart for this God that we see in the book of Genesis. Don't let the journey through the book of Genesis be for nothing. May we grow closer in our conception and devotion to God. Nothing is too difficult for God. And so we take refuge in Him. There's a second review point. We've reviewed the first point. The first point of review for revival is your God should be more awesome now than ever before. You remember the song by Rich Mullins? 
That's a, I, I love that song. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. Do you guys know that song? That's an awesome song. <laughs> that song is an awesome song. Our God is awesome. And I pray and hope that that is the God in all of our hearts. Second review point for revival is you are a representative of God. By creation, you represent God. You model God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1 as well. And so these are the, really the, the main themes, of course, of the Bible is what? One time I was in India and I was at a church and I had to go there and preach and I preached this whole thing. And then afterwards they said, Tom, can you teach one sermon on the theme of the Bible? And I said, I, I didn't bring any notes for this. And they said, yeah, but you went to seminary and teach. And so I said, okay. So I didn't know what to do. So I said, the main theme of the Bible is God. And then prayed, and as I started teaching, and the Spirit works. And then after that, it was God made you in his image. Then after that, it was you need to live by faith. And that's basically the outline here that we'll see in the book of Genesis. And so the next review point to be revived is you are made in the image of God. And you see this right here in Scripture. God's the creator. He made everything. We place him first. Love the Lord, God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So everybody by creation is a model, a fallen finite model, but a an authoritative model an ordained model mirror of God. Like a creative artwork, like a creative painting by Van Gogh or Da Vinci, I would say John Byrne. A, a creative piece of art, though, that is has intelligence and, and will and is alive and is breathing and has power and, and can create. And we... And that way, represent, model, mirror, show off who God is to all the rest of creation. Now, of course, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't model, mirror, represent, showcase God like we should. The image of God in man is not destroyed, but it's damaged because of of our sin. But that image is still there then what does this mean? And again, we see this throughout the whole Bible, but it starts here in the book of Genesis, this image of God and man. Man is the ordained image of God to model, to represent, to be a type of ambassador of God in this universe. What does this mean? Well, first, it means you are special and significant. So if you're very young, if you're older, 
you are special and significant. Even as a fallen, as a fallen finite sinner, you are special and significant because you were created in the image of God. You are an image bearer. You bear the image of God. Angels were not made in the image of God. You are special and significant in a way that angels are not. Did you know that? You are more significant and special in a certain way than angels are because you're made in the image of God. Angels aren't. Animals are not made in the image of God. Planets, you know, big, huge planets and stars and plants, however beautiful they are, are they made in the image of God? Angels, galaxies, plants, trees, all sorts of animals and fish and insects, none of them are made in the image of God. Only mankind is made in the image of God. So you are special and you're significant because of who you represent. And that is God. That image of God may be damaged in you, but it's not obliterated. You bear the image of God. Therefore, it's important to understand this because as we'll see, when a human life is taken and it's not in a type of self-defense, that, that's murder. That's why abortion is murder, because that little embryo is made in the image of God. You're desecrating, not you, but the state, the government, other companies, desecrating the image of God. They're violating that very image of God. That's foundational for a while for why abortion is wrong. Overturning Roe versus Wade, at least on a federal level, Basically, it's saving children from Moloch, right? From, from child sacrifice. And that's wrong because that little embryo, that little child is made in the image of God. Therefore, there are responsibilities that we see in Scripture, for example, that flow out of being made in the image of God. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Murder must be held accountable by capital punishment. Because it's rooted, that type of punishment, is rooted not in culture, but in creation. In creation. The image of God in man is... Important, even if we went to the New Testament, and I'm just giving some examples in the book of James, because we could all say, yes, I will never, I would never, ever, 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 ever murder anybody. That's not something I would ever think to do. But James chapter 3, verse 9, talking about our speech, the tongue as it speaks. James chapter 3, verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father. Praise you, God. You're so glorious. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving me so much. Where's my chocolate chip cookies, wife? It's been three days. I don't have my cookies. Get to work. I can't believe you. 
And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. One of the reasons why we don't curse others is because that other person bears the image of God. The reason why we don't put others down and curse at them is because they bear the very image of God. We should stop before we put other people down. Because that person is a representative, an ordained masterpiece of God. It might be damaged. (laughs) It's a damaged masterpiece of God that still bears the image of God. However, as we said, Genesis demonstrates from Adam to Abraham's family that mankind has fallen short of this image. And I think that this is one of the very purposes of Genesis, this exalted truth that man's male and female are created in the very image of God. And in the very first, second sin, not the very first, the second sin, it seems, at least that's recorded, is that Cain does what? Murders his brother and destroys Abel, who's made in the very image of God. And then as we go through Scripture, we even see that Noah had flaws. At the end of the whole story on Noah, we see that he was a fallen image. When we look at Abraham and how he treated his wife with Abimelech when they were in Egypt, and Isaac and and Jacob and their older brothers, of Joseph and Judah and what he did. And then we see throughout the whole Bible, what we see is man that was made in the very image of God rejects the God that made them. Romans chapter 1. But even though that's true, that we've rejected God and this image of God in us is tarnished and damaged, that image of God is still there. And so that's why we have James 3.9. And that's even why I think we have passages like in Colossians chapter 3 when we know Christ and we grow in Christ. We are being restored into that image of God through Jesus Christ who, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, is the exact representation of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. You cannot, for those of you that that haven't trusted Jesus yet, you, you cannot be that true representative, faithful representative of God, even though you're created in his image and you model God, you'll never model him like you should until you trust Jesus. That's what Colossians 3.10 is saying. So as we seek to review the book of Genesis, we've seen two points so far in this review. God should be more awesome in our hearts than ever before. He should be more excited, more exalted in our minds and our hearts and our emotions, our, our devotion, our thinking than ever before. And then second, our understanding of who we are and who other people are, even people that we don't like, they bear the very image of God. At least I should speak kindly to them. There's a third point of review. 
before revival. And that's this. God made a plan. And there's blessing when we trust it. God made a plan. And there is blessing when we trust it. Part of this plan, the the core of this plan, we do see in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you in the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. But there's many more specific plans Christ summarizes the plan of the Old Testament as what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In Exodus 20, we see ten ways to summarize God's plan. But even in the book of Genesis, we see this plan of God. For example, Genesis 2, verse 24 Genesis 2, verse 24, about marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Marriage is not rooted and founded in culture. It's rooted and founded in creation. It wasn't some kind of Christian Judeo creation. It wasn't created by any country, by any nationality. God created marriage. It wasn't Puritans that created marriage. Puritans did not create marriage being between one man and one woman. Puritans didn't come up with that. The Baptists didn't come up with that. The Presbyterians didn't come up with that. It was God that came up with that. And Genesis 2, 24, it's right here. Marriage is not to be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, but one man and one woman. That's what this passage says. It's very important, especially of today, because now, you know, LGBTQ, so uh, lesbians, gay, bisexual, transsexual, I have no idea what Q is. I don't. I have no idea. Now they want to add Z. It's true. For uh, like zoo, they want to say marriage with animals now is also okay. It's true. That's what the world wants to do. That is 100% wicked paganism. That's Romans 1 where a whole culture is just turning their back on God and Christ with, with adamant hatred. In their minds, they are completely corrupt and depraved. Genesis 2.24 is very clear. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and that shall become one flesh. Remember, marriage is between one man and one woman. It's very clear. We could even say further... Here in verse 27 of chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. There's two genders, male and female. As you know, one of our Supreme Court justices can't even define what a woman is. Of course she can. But there is this tremendous pressure to conform to the 
this this woke pagan agenda. But the Bible is super abundantly clear. There's male and there's female. There's man and there's a woman. There's no such thing as, well, I'm, you know, I'm half man, I'm half woman. I, I'm not really certain. Maybe when I grow up, I'll be a woman. Maybe when I grow up, I'll be a man. No. God said through creation, you're a man or you're a woman. And if you decide to become something else, that's sin. You're rejecting how God authoritatively ordained you to be. And there's a sense in which society and men, even sometimes in the church, can think, if I can be free of these shackles that bind me, then I'll be blessed. And it's deception. It's it's a lie. Satan is lying to them. Satan might be lying to you. He lies. And there's a way that seems right to the man, to men, to women, but in the end it leads to death and not blessing. All the immorality is sign of a, not a decaying society, but a decayed society. Not of a decaying society, but a decayed society that has 100% turned its back upon God. But the Bible is very clear. God has a plan. Cain rejected it. What happened to Cain? Was he blessed? No. And we can look through all Scripture, even when you have Christians like David, or even like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, men that had faith in God. When they left God, or when they turned their back on God, even though still believing in God, still believing in the Lord, but when they chose this path of sin, did it truly bless their life? No. So young men and young women, sin will never bless you, ever. It it might for that instant, and so that's why we do it. But the wages of sin is death, destruction. God's program is, I'll give you my word, seek to keep my word, it will bless you. When you don't keep it, there's a Savior and a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Turn from your sin. Trust him. He will cleanse you. But as you seek to obey my word, it will bless you. There is this plan of God that God has given to to bless us. Additionally, we could go back to Genesis 3.15 and see this plan of redemption. And there is a plan that we need to understand that God set in motion really from before time, but we see it revealed here in Genesis 3.15. This is the, it's called Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Proto means first evangelium, evangel, gospel, good news. This is the first good news, that God is providing a redeemer and a savior. And the point that's important here is that God didn't have plan A. Oh, man, plan A didn't work. Okay, Noah, go to plan B. You know, Noah didn't kind of work there at the end. Okay, then I'll go to Abraham. Abraham blew it a couple times. Okay, he blew it a lot lot of times. I'll go to plan C. God never had, God didn't have contingency plans. We have contingency plans because we fail. Because we're not all powerful. We're not all wise. 
We're not everywhere all the time. God doesn't have plans A through Z. He has one plan, and he's kept that plan. And the core of that plan is the Messiah. And as you go through Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the historical books, the prophets, so much of it is revealed. And so that's why we have, like, Psalm 16 even talks about the resurrection. Verse 10 of Psalm 16, Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's so many places we could go. I'm just giving you a super quick glimpse. You could go to Isaiah 53, right? This great chapter about the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Genesis 3.15 is expanded as the Old Testament proceeds forward. Even Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about the new covenant and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The, The New Testament then fulfills, of course, the Old Testament plan. What's left to happen in God's redemption plan? God promised that he would send a redeemer, a Messiah. That was Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1, 3 and 4 says he's better. He has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And now he sits down at the right hand of the Father, having fulfilled, accomplished a victorious mission. What, what is left of God's redemption plan? His return. That's it. His return. Could be today. Would you like it if the Messiah came back today? The only reason you wouldn't like it is if you're living in sin. Right? I would love it if Christ came back today. I have sin that I, I'm sure I need to repent of. I want to see my Savior and my Lord. The redemption plan has been accomplished except for His return. God has a plan. God is sticking to that plan. When we place our hope in that plan, then there is a blessing. There is refreshment. There is reviving. And it starts in Genesis. There's a fourth point of review for revival. And this is live by faith. Live by faith. And we see this in Genesis 15, verse 6. Speaking of Abraham, then he believed in the Lord, Yahweh, and he, that is the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is justification by faith. Abraham believed in the Lord and what the Lord had said and what the Lord did and was going to do. Abraham trusted him. He was a very imperfect man, but he lived by faith. If we are to learn anything from the book of Genesis, we should learn to live by faith. It was exemplified by Noah, right? God said, Noah, build a a big, super huge boat. It's going to rain a long time, and the whole earth is going to be covered by water. 
and get you and your family, get in this boat, I'll provide for you, I'll take care of you, and then when it's done, I'm going to repopulate the whole earth through you. Now, probably Noah had never seen it ever rain, ever. But yet Noah believed God. Abraham, very, very advanced in age, God told him, go to the land of Canaan, and your wife's going to have a child. Sarah had never had a child. She couldn't have a baby. And in her advanced age, God said, Abraham, your wife, who's very old, is going to have a baby. And from that baby, I'm going to bless the whole world. And Abraham believed. And all you have to do is turn to Hebrews 11 and see that, that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that though they did sin and though they were very imperfect and struggled, they at the same time believed God. And they fought to have that faith in God. And if you look at Genesis and just compare how much revelation Abraham had with how much we have. So Abraham, you could take his revelation that he had, you know, and Isaac and Jacob, maybe you would take a couple of pages of the Bible. We have so much revelation that we have from God. Our faith should be like Abraham's and Isaac and Jacob's and Joseph's. I think at least. In Hebrews 11, when it gives that long list of heroes of the faith, is their faith super extraordinary faith? Is that list given, I wonder, because their faith is super hero duper faith? Or is their faith normal faith? I think probably their faith is normal faith and most people's faith is a subpar faith. I think. Well, it's important because Galatians 2.20 we can look at Abraham and even David as Paul writes about them in Romans chapter 4. We won't take time to do that, but Romans 4 talks about their faith and being saved by faith and Abraham's hope against hope. But we can even look when Paul talks to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is no other way to live the Christian life but by faith. There is no other way. And living by faith can be hard because you don't... By by definition, faith doesn't see its object. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8 And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There is this faith which by its nature is looking to something. Like Moses, he was looking for that city and he was looking toward Christ. Though he saw neither at that time. 
faith is not faith in faith or faith in the universe or it's not even believing that God exists. The, the demons believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Holy One, and that he even died on the cross and rose again, right? D- demons have that awareness. But there's not this sweet surrender of their soul to Christ. Psalm 2, they're not, take, they're not kissing the Son and then taking refuge in Him. There is the sweet surrender of the soul to Christ, which is where our faith goes. We don't see the Savior now, but we Savior Him and find our satisfaction in Him and trust Him and submit to Him. And we live by faith. And we live by faith like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did, and even Joseph did any of those men, and even the women, their wives, did, did they have an easy life? They did not. Our lives probably isn't, are not as hard as their lives, but our life the past, what, three or four years has been difficult. And right now we have a breather. Is it going to get more difficult? It could get a lot more difficult. It wasn't that bad. I don't think we're in Revelation 6 yet. doesn't seem like it. How then do we live? We live by faith. Not, oh, I, because I, not people necessarily here, but I do interact with some of the people, and it's almost like, good times are coming. Good times are rolling in. That would be great. My expectation, though, is not that America is going to do better, but rather Jesus is going to return. And until that time, I need to love my family and disciple others and preach the word. Faith is not expecting necessarily good times. That would be great. But faith is looking to Jesus. Jesus is my answer. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my treasure. He's the one I want to see. So, don't waste the opportunity of going through Genesis and not be revived in your faith. Right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not the greatest men of the Bible. But they had faith in a great God. And so they did significant things for God. And they were used by him in a great way. I think this is why Jesus, our Lord, said, even if your faith is the side, the, the size of a tiny mustard seed, you can do what? Move a mountain. It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of the object of your faith. And that's Jesus Christ who is himself the creator of the universe. So I I think then, the Lord's desire is not for us to be done with Genesis, but to grow by reviewing Genesis, to grow in Christ. So I would challenge you with this. Read a chapter of Genesis every day again. Two months ago, I read through the whole book of Genesis again, just one chapter a day. Why not just read one chapter of Genesis a day 
what, a month and a half, almost two months, then after you read a chapter, just pray. Just pray about it. Lord, revive me. What I've seen here in Genesis 14, help me to understand it and revive it. Don't let the truth of it just flow from my heart and mind. Lord, do a work on my soul. Amen. I mean, it would take you maybe at the most 10 minutes to read through one chapter and then pray briefly. That would take what? Maybe 10 minutes. Why not do that? Let's see what God does. There's a VBS song. I love it. And it goes, uh, basically, at least this is my rendition of it. Learn it, love it, live it. Have you heard that song? Learn it, love it, live it. It's, it's about the Bible. Learn it, love it, live it. And I exhort you and myself and pray that we would learn Genesis, love Genesis, and live Genesis. I hope this is not going to be the end of Genesis, but may this be the Genesis of us being revived for Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis. What a great time it was to be in this first book, Lord, of the Bible. May your word do its work in our souls, and may we see true repentance and revival in our own heart from this wonderful book, Lord. May we not be the same after going through it, Lord. Change us, Lord, that we might become that true model of God in Christ. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. Amen.